Welcome to Fierce Competition, a podcast from Skadden's global antitrust and competition group that explores antitrust policy and enforcement around the world. Join our colleagues from across the continent as we discuss the latest developments and what they mean to you in an increasingly complex legal and regulatory landscape. Welcome to this first episode of our new podcast, Fierce Competition. It's our brand new podcast series where we explore top trends in competition law and what it means for your business. So in this first edition of our podcast, we're going to look at trends in global merger control. We really see a new era. My name is Ingrid van Bora. I'm a partner at Skadden's Brussels office. And I'm joined for this episode by Dave Wales, a partner in our Washington, D.C. office. Hello, everybody. And I'm also joined by Andrew Foster, partner in our Hong Kong office. So over the past couple of years, we've seen the regulatory landscape for merger control change. It's become a lot more complex, a lot more fragmented. So we thought in this first episode, we'd look at what that means for merger control, what it means for deal activity, and what companies need to think about when they navigate all of these intricacies. It has become less clear generally when and where um, you have to file your deal in a world that's become a lot more complicated. And so, the, and the outcome has even become less predictable. So I wanted to raise, why do we think that is just generally as a starting point? Well, I think that certainly in jurisdictions around the world, including Asia and Asia Pacific, but Europe as well, and even now, getting into Southeast Asia and South America, we're getting much more attention and interest from regulators to try to make sure that they're capturing every kind of transaction that they think needs to be seen. I think there is a, a perception that maybe the old, the old tools were not working as well as they could have. And what that means is we've seen a raft of new either new thresholds, new regimes, or modifications to thresholds, which have brought far more jurisdictions into looking at things like values of, you know, value of the transaction rather than looking purely to revenues. We have lots of, um, lots of enforcers now wanting to look at you know, things like monthly average users and whether you do R&D you know, in particular in a, in a jurisdiction. And so you know, it's gone from a set of regimes where, you know, most of us could look at, a, you know, targets revenues and, and figure out pretty quickly where we needed to file and why uh, to having to do much more, a much deeper analysis and, and looking at many different types of things that we had to look at in the past. Yeah. Do you agree, Dave? Yeah, I think so, Ingrid. As, as you probably can tell, uh, in the U.S., the Biden administration has been very aggressive in merger enforcement, right? We have lots more to talk about on on that front. But kind of the unpredictability that you commented about, in some ways, um, you know, that's driven by the fact that in the beginning of the Biden administration, they actually tried to pass laws that would actually prohibit mergers, right? They've appointed uh, two leaders at the FTC and DOJ that are very uh, aggressive in looking uh, and going after mergers. Part of their mantra is that previous antitrust enforcement was too lax. But they've also really focused on deterrence, right? Like their, their view is it's not our job to tell you what mergers may be lawful. You can figure that out, but we're going to push the envelope and look for deals 
that are anti-competitive and, you know, broader theories, really anti-remedy, which is another big factor that makes it harder for dealmakers to really think about how to get a deal done that has antitrust issues. And they really are pushing the envelope on the substance when it comes to vertical issues, potential competition, conglomerate theory even. Uh, in fact, they look more like, uh, you know, the European enforcers maybe in, in Asia than they ever have before. And so I think it is much more challenging for dealmakers to figure out how do I get through not only the U.S., of course, but also, as you guys know, the rest of the world in this new environment. Yeah, and, and we see, I think it's a good point, we see the tests change between and across jurisdictions, right? You said the U.S. is taking up some of what's happening in Europe, but there's a lot of divergence, different theories of harm, different um, outcomes routinely now in cases that we're seeing. And so I think that reduces a lot more uncertainty for companies that are doing M&A. You've got not only different outcomes, but often it means extended timetables and transaction costs. Yeah, for sure. And the agents are talking to each other, right? They are coordinating. They've always been doing that. But I think there's more risk of divergence, right, uh, on substance. And we've seen that in some cases I know we're going to talk about. But also, two remedies. It's, it's really hard, right? If you have, you may have a remedy in the U.S. Uh, or not, right, depending on the, the current stance, but have a more receptive audience in Europe and Asia for a remedy than you do in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, it used to be that China was the real risk of divergence. And, you know, as the EU and U.S. went, so went the rest of the world. And I think that not only is that very much changing, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, but in particular in, in Asia, we have seen regulators that have traditionally been quite mature and reasonably stayed, uh, including the Fair Trade Commission in Japan and the Fair Trade Commission in Korea, become much more aggressive, much more aggressive in their enforcement. They're trying to call in transactions that don't even meet, you know, even the new expanded thresholds they have. And it, it just seems like there's a real appetite now, which, of course, just brings more uncertainty to your deal planning. Yeah. So I think if we want to summarize, so what we're going to talk about today, I think we're seeing changing theories of harm as sort of the first item. It's become a lot um, more troublesome more quickly for regulators. We see differencing standards and evidence and factors of analysis between countries. So maybe... Those would be our big factors that we can talk about. And so maybe let's kick it off with the first one, these evolving theories of harm. Maybe to ask, does it mean that the traditional theories of harm, horizontal overlaps, that's all gone? Uh, regulators don't care about traditional theories of harm anymore? What do we think about that? No, I mean, that's certainly not true. And, you know, I, I think the original analysis, you know, the old the old traditional analysis still has to be done, right? That's That's still your starting point. That's still the basis for any evaluation that you're going to do on, on looking at how any particular transaction will be evaluated by the regulators. But I think on top of that now, there is a much deeper toolbox that certainly does try to pull in conglomerate theories and more, much more novel theories of harm to try to grapple with what are very dynamic and, and fast-moving industries. And ones that I think, as Dave alluded to earlier, you know, it seems some administrations think perhaps we're not being sufficiently evaluated using the traditional tools. Yeah, and we see definitely in Europe, for example, the competition authorities are looking at interconnecting theories of harm. They're looking at how products and markets adjacent to one another can lead to issues. Um, so certainly not through traditional overlaps only, but in addition to looking at those overlaps and so looking at uh, butterfly, they call it, effects of transactions having multiple links across multiple markets. 
Google Fitbit's one example, but even so the recent or the upcoming, I think we should say, we're all thinking about it, the booking.com decision in Europe that will come out. It's related to adjacent markets and what that means for companies that are becoming active in different markets related to one another. So before we dive into ecosystems, though, because I think that's where we're trending to, we're thinking about that. Dave, what's happening in the U.S. in this front? How aggressive is the is the U.S., are the agencies looking at that? Yeah, uh, very aggressive, right, Ingrid and, and Drew. And I think probably the, the place to really focus on is the new merger guidelines, the proposed merger guidelines that are no longer horizontal or vertical. It's kind of everything in one, right? And they've, they've really kind of come out with 13 kind of key principles. And we'll see, you know, uh, when those get finalized in the U.S., as you guys know, It'll be a big question as to whether courts will adopt those merger guidelines, which really do push the envelope, we think, beyond even the current state of, of the law in the U.S. But if you think about kind of the horizontal versus other theories, uh, as you guys teed it up, you know, what they've really done is on, you know, horizontal theories are very much alive and well. And in fact, they're doubling down on those theories by trying to lower the, the thresholds under which you decide that a merger may presumptively raise competitive harms. And so... There's a 30%, you know, kind of a a threshold set for horizontal overlaps where uh, above 30% combined share, there's a presumption that the deal has a problem. But they've also kind of, you know, teed up just, you know, the fact that there is, you know, kind of evidence of direct competition between the parties is something that may be enough to to raise concerns, which obviously, you know, could could pull in a lot more deals. But they also have kind of a a long laundry list of of additional theories that really go beyond just your your traditional vertical or horizontal theories for sure. And so conglomerate theories, potential competition theories, and a bunch of new ideas that they think hopefully they can convince a judge to be more aggressive on. And we're also seeing more aggressive cases, too. If you look at some of the cases that have been brought in the vertical range, but also in potential competition, they really are pushing the envelope here. And so you kind of look, it's funny, if you look at what Europe uh, had done in the past, it's almost as if they're following that playbook and trying to really, you know, explore some of those more uh, exotic theories. So how about Asia, Drew? Do you see the ecosystem? issues and other coming up there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny, and you, you mentioned the starting to look at adjacent markets when, when we do our notifications for the Chinese authority. They specifically ask us to identify any neighboring markets, right? So you already have to go through an exercise where you're setting out for them explicitly what you think is a neighboring market. And we had a previous case which involved avionics and aviation inputs and you know we asked sam or we asked the the regulator well what, what does that mean adjacent what you know what do you mean they basically said yeah anything that goes into a plane they thought that was enough they can stretch that you know you can be doing a, an automotive semiconductor case and well, anything that goes into a car right and so the, you know they're trying to really think in a very broad way to capture everything that they possibly can and china of course has written into its statute, it has a statutory mandate to look not only at traditional theories of competitive harm, but also to look at the impact of a transaction on the development of the national economy in China. So that obviously leads to some divergent effects as well. But they've also been watching very carefully what the European Union has been doing. Um, they're very interested in testing out the uh, the new dynamic theories that um, that the EU tends to, to be leading or at the forefront on. But I will say that they're probably not, particularly not Korea and Japan, I would say they're not out there breaking new ground. So while ecosystems are a huge factor in China and Alibaba and, and Weixin and WeChat both had their 
ecosystems effectively not dismantled, but had the walls cracked by the regulators. Those are not theories that they really um, have been pushing quite as hard as they have been in the West. I think they're more they're more trailing here. Yeah, I think so. In Europe, and and let's hope not all regulators follow all the sort of breadth of what the European authorities are doing. Just to give kind of an example, there's really focus on what is called ecosystem, but but there's no real definition of what an ecosystem is. So Meta's ecosystem was identified as a concern um, in its acquisition of customer, which was a startup platform that was looking at cloud-based customer relationship management services. It was cleared uh, without conditions in the UK and Germany, but with remedies by the commission based on that ecosystem idea. And the thought was that Meta would steer more customers towards the ecosystem. And it's sort of feeding generally a foreclosure theory of harms. You're foreclosing customers from going to competitors. We're seeing that same theory broadly come back in other cases. Um, it is was the case in the Microsoft Activision transaction. I mentioned the booking, a travel eye case. There as well, it's kind of adjacent markets. You've got hotel accommodation and you've got flight travel. Um, those are adjacent. Customers want both. The combination of those two, that's not so self-evident as as not raising an issue. That's going to be viewed as, oh, it's problematic because all of a sudden you have something that you can combine. The troubling thing is, and we're raising this with the regulators in the submissions that we make, is there is no definition of what an ecosystem is. They're kind of describing it or coming up with it as they go. I think the common factor is there is no clear horizontal link and there is no clear vertical link. It doesn't have to be defined as a clear conglomerate link in the kind of definition. So it's none of the above, but there's somehow an adjacency that is relevant. And the main concern, the main harm, which is probably what unites the theories most, is not so much the structure, but the harm, is a foreclosure of harm, that you have a combination of products in related or adjacent markets that somehow the combination of which in one player is going to foreclose others by enabling that company to do things, whether tying or bundling or leverage in some form. But it all seems to be related around foreclosure theories. And in the booking.com case, it's very much around raising rivals' costs. I think that's even the basic denominator. That they, There's a concern, frankly, that regulators are not so much looking at what is bad for consumers. Um, even if it's good for consumers, even if you have a better product or a lower price, the question starting to become, well, are you raising rivals' costs? Is this merger going to make it harder for competitors to come in because the products become better, cheaper, more sophisticated, more combined, because I think the agencies are acknowledging in the Booking.com case that this may be something customers want. Customers may want a combined offer, and that would be great. But the authorities think that it creates a barrier. So maybe we should not have that combined offer, which is a bit shocking. I think to us antitrust professionals can say, like, the first thing should be the consumer price choice, but not so much the intermediaries, the market participants that may have a, a increased cost of being in the market. So... The question is, on the one hand, do we really want this stepping away from traditional theories of harm? Are we not set with horizontal vertical conglomerate? And is there room to come up with these raising rivals cost 
Dave, what's the U.S. take on the ecosystem part, the way I describe it? Yeah, I think, I think Ingrid, it's, it's shockingly similar in the U.S. Uh, I think, it, you know, the way I look at it is the U.S. authorities say, trust us, we know it when we see it, right? And it's not necessarily horizontal. It's not necessarily vertical. If you look at the new merger guidelines, you know, they're not horizontal merger guidelines. They are just the guidelines. And they really do take all of these concepts when it comes to entrenchment, to platforms, multi-sided platforms, just kind of lay out all the different theories that you might actually think of when it comes to ecosystems and platforms with the idea that they're just going to kind of wait to see what cases come down the pike and then hopefully use some of those guidelines to convince judges that even though it may not fit within the, the box of a horizontal case or a vertical case, that they can try and convince them that there's an issue. And we've, we've already seen some of this too. I mean, if you look at the, the meta case, you know, by the FTC, that's a, you know, kind of a platform case, has some Section 7 merger elements to it, some monopolization elements to it. If you look at the new Google ad tech case, same thing. You know, there's a lot of kind of a platform type issues there. And so I think the agencies are really trying to push the envelope on that. The one thing I'll say is in the, the, the current merger guidelines, they talk about multi-sided platforms, and that's always been a big challenge, uh, you know, for the agencies. We saw that in the Saber Fair Logic's case. They lost at least at the district court level, but of course was blocked at the CMA, which kind of goes back to the global enforcement point. But they really just say in there, it's, it's, it's almost as if it's like, hey, here's a potential theories you might have in multi-sided platforms, and it could be competition on the platform, it could be competition between the platforms, it could be competition to disrupt the platform. And we just think all those things raise issues. There's no discussion of when, you know, when that might apply, when it might not apply. And Jonathan Cantor uh, this week, when, it, when kind of pressed on, hey, we have these new merger guidelines, and they really express all the ways you could find problems with deals, but they don't really talk about how to decide whether a deal actually raises issues and when it may not raise issues. And he said, well, basically, we're not the rotten tomatoes uh, you know, of, uh, of, of enforcement. And so it's not our job to actually have a recipe for you that tells yeah. you when your deal is anti-competitive. We just know it when we see it, basically. And we're looking for these types of cases. I mean, but I, shouldn't we say that that's exactly not true, right? Shouldn't yeah, he be giving us guidance is. so that yeah. we can, you know, so well, that we can it, know? It, it kind of goes back to the point, Drew, of, of deterrence, right? I mean, they kind of like yeah. the idea of people worrying about deals. And the one thing that we also heard from the DOJ and the FTC this week, which was a little interesting, was they think that their goal of deterrence is working, that they are seeing fewer deals that raise issues. And so I think part of that is, you know, if you're specific, then, you know, that may not be the case, right? If you're too transparent, and if you want to litigate, right, you don't want to be that transparent. I and mean, so I think that's the unfortunate uh, reality in the U.S. Well, I mean, and so that, you know, of, of course, takes a page from exactly how the Chinese authorities are. They have always declined to publish any sort of guidance or guidelines that would hem them in. Um, they do not like to put those types of clear guidelines out into the world, which, of course, does a disservice to you know, to any business thinking about a transaction because it, you know, this, while it's great for lawyers, it's certainly not great for, um, it's not great for our clients. But, you know, and going back to Ingrid's point about looking at raising rivals' costs, I mean, that again is something that has long been current in China. The first people that they're going to go talk to are the trade associations of your competitors, right? I mean, Chinese stakeholders, obviously customers are, are vitally important in the process, but so are your competitors and so is the industry regulator. And those are the people, those are the first people that SAMR is going to go talk to. Yeah. That may, may be a good lead into the second part that we're going to talk about. So we've talked about the different theories of harm, um, evolving views on evidence. It's kind of our, our second 
theme here because it becomes um, increasingly complicated to the cases before these competition authorities. There's a lot of focus on new types of evidence that we didn't see before. Um, deal valuation, deal rationale is becoming central. They want to second guess exactly why the deal was done. They want to see why exactly you evaluated at the amount that you did. Um, what that implies in terms of how the parties think the market will evolve and assumptions build into that. And then crucially, much more questions about internal documents and huge document productions we're seeing uh, even in Europe. There's, as a standing uh, rule, you have all of the second request production goes to the European authorities and then some on top. So it's becoming even worse. And so the time frame is extending. We're seeing that, I think, across jurisdictions Um it's just un unbelievable if you compare how we were advising on the timeline for getting a deal done five years ago compared to what we're what we're advising now. But, but yeah, let me know what you think. What, what's the most uh, dramatic evolution there? Maybe, Drew, you want to start sort of how you look at timetables. The timetables are, are always, if we think first about China, very much driven just by the fact that there is this consensus-based approach taken in China, and that necessarily means it's going to take time. They take months and months. Um, they ignore their own timelines. They talk to everybody that they can possibly talk to. I think the one benefit of China is that you don't have these document productions, at least not yet, right? So they are not yet looking at the internal documents in the same way that they are in the EU and the UK and the US. But unfortunately, while China still does not do that, we have very much seen Korea and Japan start to make requests. They want a selection of, of those internal documents. They are being pointed to them by the other regulators. As Dave mentioned, the regulators are all talking, and they, we are now getting requests where we are getting specific lists of documents from a CMA production that they want to see, from an HSR production that they want to see. And then if you go down to Australia, they are certainly exactly on that boat and, and you know, firing off very similar, very invasive, very burdensome document type productions as well as depositions of you know, senior executives. So, I mean, certainly that's all adding a lot of weight into the system um, from our side. Dave, in the U.S., I mean, the second request productions were kind of born in the U.S., right? But is, is there development there also and how that's being dealt with uh, and, and other evidence types? Yeah, for sure. I think that it's interesting. If you think about maybe the three buckets of, of evidence, right, that, that uh, you know, have historically been most relevant in a merger investigation, there's what we call direct evidence, which is really like documents, what the, what the, you know, what the executives might say about the deal, the marketplace. There's kind of uh, structural evidence, right, market shares, you know, number of competitors in the space. And then there's economic uh, data, right, and analysis. And it was interesting to hear Jonathan Cantor talk about his view on those. And it really was Hey, if any any of those go positive, we're going right. I mean, there's going to be you know going to be a challenge. But I think that in today's world, right, the reality is that the the significance of that evidence is starting to change because, especially if you read the guidelines, right, you know, shocker, right, you know, the structural presumptions are alive and well and and being expanded because that's where they really feel like in tough cases where you're pushing the envelope on theory, speculative theories, allegedly, right. You want to have that presumption, and that's where the agencies have failed when they don't have that structural presumption. You know, high market shares in a horizontal case, 
it's really hard to bring cases. And so they really like the idea of using the the executives' words against them, right? They've doubled down on looking at that that evidence. To your point too, Ingrid, deal models, right? Are you baking in, you know, things that might suggest there's market power? Like the price itself, right? You're paying so much for this this merger, right, or this acquisition that must be any competitive. But it also uh, kind of puts in perspective the economic evidence, right, which had always kind of been the cornerstone for, you know, modern U.S. enforcement. They've really walked away from that and said economics may not be that important uh, because the reality is there's not a lot of economic tools that really do support some of these more speculative, vertical, potential competition, entrenchment theories. And if you look at the cases, too, where luckily in the U.S. they have to litigate, judges have kind of shredded them on the lack of economic evidence. Certainly, uh, uh, you know, I have to tell you, Ingrid, Microsoft Activision, other cases, there's really been a lot of criticism on that. And so I think they've really focused more on the structural presumptions piece of this, the market, you know, uh, structure, but also the documents. And the one thing that, you know, the DOJ and FTC has always said is, you know, when you have uh, uncertainty about how the marketplace is going to play out, you know, we rely on the company's view of the world. And so that kind of comes back to if they're saying, hey, this deal is going to give us power, or even if the market is defined this way, they're going to use that against you. Yeah, yeah. So in Europe, I think it's really the rise of internal documents where other evidence is being very much discredited. It's basically viewed as com- that something the parties have developed, but it's not reality necessarily. It's all advocacy. And so they dismiss it. We've seen that in, in a couple of key cases where the commission came out and said very explicitly, we make our decisions based on what's in the internal documents. And we've been told that when we do put these economic studies in, they're kind of inconclusive, like they're helpful, useful, thank you very much, but they're inconclusive to address the, the issues. So in, in Dow DuPont, we, we know the commission used this innovation theory of harm, and there the commission of Vestager already, and so this is already a couple of years ago, publicly stated that internal documents, quote unquote, help the commission make better decisions and understand the company's plans for the future. So it is really something that they're looking to, to exclusion sometimes of, of other things. Um, Similarly, in the UK, the recent revision of the CMA's merger guidelines identify the importance of the internal documents, and they kind of refer to the fact that, you know, other data may be scarce, but internal documents are going to be increasingly relied on. Uh, Meta Giphy decision was almost exclusively relied on in internal documents, and we'll get to that maybe as well, third-party evidence, right? The input and comments they're getting from, from third parties. Um, so that's maybe also a point to, to consider, like, to what extent do third parties play a role and, and do they come into the analysis more and more? But, you know, it's one thing to say that you're going to rely on internal documents, but what they don't ever say is that they're going to rely on a very cherry-picked, small self-selection of internal documents. And then they, you know, very often are ignoring the great weight of the evidence just because they found you know, a great soundbite from someone in marketing rather than, you know, somebody who has actual, you know, directional control yeah. over a company. Yeah, yeah. And in the U.S. even, too, uh, they, they go even further, Drew, and so they will say that the, the absence of, you know, bad documents should not be read uh, to support the party's arguments either. And it's like, you can't have it both ways, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't think judges have seen it that way, and we certainly have seen that in some of the recent uh, losses by DOJ FTC where the judges said, I, I think it is uh, probative, right, that I don't see documents talking about uh, the, the ability to exercise market power as a result of this deal. And so I, I think it's, it really is cherry-picking. Yeah, yeah. And at least in Europe, we don't have a court that sort of selects that. And so I think as a result of that, we also don't have clear 
evidentiary standards. Like at some point in the U.S., you think this is going to go to court and court. You have a clear evidentiary standard that will apply. You cannot share big documents. That's sort of non-existent in, in Europe just because the whole process with documents is relatively new. And, and you see it's a very somewhat uh, sort of new and Im unsophisticated way of dealing with, with documents, frankly. Well, and it's interesting because I feel like in some ways, especially in, in, in Europe, you have this creep where the same evidentiary presumptions that they like to use against cartels are starting to creep in to mergers, right? And that's that's an unfair thing. But I think right. I, I think there's a very similar approach to evidence, which is, the, you know, that same sort of cherry picking. Um, and there's a particular focus, I think, on documents around, I mentioned the sort of deal valuation and what is the deal premium? And I think it's there's this implicit assumption that when you have a company that is not on its face, perhaps valued in the way that the deal valuation suggests from the regulator's perspective, the implicit assumption is that the buyer will leverage its market position based on the target in a way that is more or worse than what the target company alone in the market would mean. And so the mere fact of there being a very high deal value would reflect that increased market power almost directly, right? That's kind of the deal premium. And that makes synergies discussions very difficult because every synergy discussion, we saw that in the booking.com deal, the, the way the parties had presented this was we'll have a common point for customers. This is going to be valuable. And it's turned into the theory of harm because the value that was the deal has become the issue that is the premium. That is how you're going to block others because you value this asset and it's become very clear. I know, is that deal value in the U.S. Is, is also very central, right, to the assessment? It is, it is, Inger. That's very much the, the conversations. Why are you paying so much? But it's also, it's, it's even worse than that, too, because it's also this make-or-buy dynamic as well. It's like, well, if you're spending, you know, $50 billion on this company, shouldn't you have taken that money and tried to invest to enter in the same product space? So it's a bit of like a, you know, social engineering, you know, type consideration. Um, and I think that's a real push for them to try and, and make that point. Uh, and you do see that in the merger guidelines. You do see that in some of the commentary uh, around the, the cases uh, as to why what would be better, right? They actually, the, believe it or not, the guidelines actually say in them, and it was a very fascinating point, that in essence, uh, organic growth is better than inorganic growth, right? And actually cite to a case in the U.S. And what was very interesting was just this week they admitted that that was dicta, not controlling, and uh, something they put in there just in case they wanted to use it in a future case. I think it's very, this presumption of we assume that acquisition is not an appropriate way of growth and that only organic growth is the right way of growth is a very narrow and constrained way of looking at competition. It's, it is, and we keep repeating that across cases, all of us, but I think it's very much how regulators see it, um, that acquisitions have become more of a, a bad thing in general and you have to kind of disprove, you have to disprove the whole assumption as it were. Which ironically is, you know, potentially dampening to innovation, right? Because if you're not going to get a return, if you can't sell the thing, why are you, why are you, why are you going to do a good job making it in the first place? Yep, exactly. And there have been studies on that, too, that have shown that that has a dampered uh, investment, uh, which is a real issue in the U.S. One thing to mention that I did want to underscore that the commission, and, and I don't know to what extent it's true for the other regulators much, but the commission really sticks to its market test and this third-party input. Right? So you can get really difficult process if the commission could say, well, I understand all your advocacy, I get all your points, there's nothing bad in your documents, but we have these third parties that make these comments and unfortunately we're going to have to take those into account. That's a very difficult thing to, to deal with. 
And so th that's a struggle. So a, a big part of the assessment is how we're going, how are third parties going to feel about this transaction? How much do the other agencies, uh, are they functioning as a platform for complainants? Uh, how, how does that work in the U.S., for example, Dave? Is that a big complaining? Is that a big factor in the review? It is. I think competitor complaints, uh, third-party complaints are becoming much more important. It's kind of back to the point you'd made before, Ingrid, about how, at least in the U.S., it, it, you know, it's pretty clear law that the antitrust laws are, are designed to protect competition, not individual competitors. But if you read the guidelines and all these different theories, they really are geared less towards consumers and much more towards competitors, raising entry barriers, uh, foreclosure that you talked about. And so I think they're, they're very much focused on that. And so when you think about the evidence, right, that, that is you know, pertinent to some of these more speculative of theories, it's less and less customer views, right? Because customers may not really appreciate you know, how the market may play out, and they may not really have thought or, or be concerned about some of these more envelope-pushing theories. And so I think you're going to find the agencies relying less on customers, which really are the, the victims, right, uh, of, yeah. of some of these alleged mergers, and much more on competitors. And what you, what you find in the U.S., right, and we used to always criticize, you know, cover your ears, Ingrid, we used to always cover, you know, criticize the Europeans for being too open to competitor complaints. Well, we think now there's a cottage industry in the United States of, of law firms representing you know, c competitors and going in and making a difference on deals. And so that's something new. And so it really goes into thinking about how am I going to defend this transaction and try to undermine competitor concerns. And we certainly saw that right in Microsoft Activision, where, you know, the FTC relied on a single competitor. And I think the court saw through that. Yeah. Drew, what about in Asia? Is that competitors complaining? Is that a big factor there as well? Well, I mean, so of course, from China, it's written into the law. So yeah. it's quite, quite big in China. And, and as Dave alludes to, not only is there a cottage industry, I, we used to get emails from one certain local council that I will remain unnamed, who would celebrate the complaint, the successful complaint that he had, you know, brought to damage, uh, and he'd send it around to his whole, um, to his whole list, which we always thought was um, maybe not the best marketing. But outside of China, I think it's probably less dangerous than you know, it may be becoming in other jurisdictions. I will say, you know, for example, in Microsoft Activision, you know, Sony's home jurisdiction in Japan, you know, they looked very seriously at it, but the Japanese were happy to, after a very thorough review, were happy to give an unconditional clearance. So even, you know, even in their home jurisdiction, they weren't getting a lot of credit. That being said, you know, obviously, if you're looking at national champions in any particular place, if you're looking at Samsung in Korea or one, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor in Taiwan, they'll obviously be listened to, right? But I don't think it's the same idea of this sort of, you know, having this cottage industry of complaints that are, that I don't think that, I don't think it gets the same traction. I think maybe just to end, maybe we should be thinking about looking forward. What's the right strategy to get through deals? And how do we think things are going to evolve going forward on those two points? Maybe Drew, to start with you. Well, I mean, I think, you know, as, as all... Three of us are, are happy to report. I mean, we, we are still getting deals done. So sometimes it's taking longer and sometimes our advocacy has to be quite forceful. But I think it's true and certainly not just for China, but around the world. I don't think that people should despair and think that, you know, this process is becoming unmanageable. But I think what it does mean is that you really do need to get out in front of it. And I think that, you know, it now becomes all the more important to do some very serious in-depth analysis before you get started and to do it with the benefit of having these types of experiences to know to know that the world has changed because I, I think that helps us evaluate the risk in a much 
more helpful way for our clients. You know, obviously, digital platforms and tech deals are going to get a lot of scrutiny. I think we all know that, you know, semiconductor deals in addition in China in particular. And, uh, you know, as Ingrid was talking about, you know, deal rationale and valuation, those are issues that maybe the bankers should stop doing such a good job and stop getting so much money for their clients. But, you know, it's something we have to watch out for uh, early on. We were almost ending on a positive note, but then we got into sort of the... (laughs) <laughs> the sort of like more more uh, concerning, uh, like Dave. What, what do you think? Sort of crystal ball gazing. How do you see things going? Yeah, I think Ingrid. The the good news is, as Drew said, uh, tough deals can still get done. I think the strategy has to change on tough deals. Yeah. You're not in an environment that's very anti remedy, and so if you have a deal that could have otherwise been solved with a remedy, I think that really requires some front loading in terms of what am I going to do to handle that? Am I going to have a buyer up front? Am I going to litigate the fix? I think you have to comply with the second request much more often than you had to in the past. You really have to put the U.S. agencies to their proof. And no one likes to imagine that a merger might be litigated, but the reality is you really have to have that credible threat because unlike the other jurisdictions, of course, in the U.S., the, the agencies have to go to court to block a deal. And we're finding that, you know, in some of these more aggressive cases, they're losing, right? And again, no one wants to litigate a case. But that, you know, is starting, we think, to discipline the agencies on some level. You know, there, there has been a few more settlements lately, especially by the FTC. You know, DOJ was forced to do on the Asset Boy case. And so I think if you have a deal that has real issues, you just need to think about that strategy and making sure you bake in if there's a remedy. If, if I do have to go to the mat on this, do I have time to at least threaten litigation? Because the reality is, uh, while the agencies are talking tough and maybe bringing some more cases, uh, they have limited resources, they can't go after every deal, and the law hasn't changed. And they still have to go to before a court to convince them that the deal's a problem. And that disciplines them. And so if you set it up correctly, you can really maximize that leverage on a deal and, again, get tough deals done. I fully agree with that. I think that it is duplicate deals done. I think you need to be better prepared, as we're all saying, right? I think better prepared, thinking about things ahead of time. How will regulators look at this? How do I manage the risk? How do I anticipate the questions that will come, the internal documents that they will see? How do I navigate that? And indeed, thinking of remedies, because regulators don't want to always be viewed as prohibiting deals, especially as the economic climate is changing. I think that's across the board the case. And so it will it will be more difficult for them to continue to stance of, you know, we on some speculative theory, we're going to hold this up. There is going to be more objection and discipline that's going to raise from markets, from industry participants generally. So I think there is scope to get things done. So with that, I want to thank both of you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And we'll look forward to welcoming you to our next Fierce Competition podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Fierce Competition. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com.